chapter 10, verse 1. It says, Then he, he being Jesus, arose from there and came to the region of Judea by the other side of the Jordan. And the multitudes gathered to him again. And as he was accustomed, he taught them again. And the Pharisees came and asked him, saying, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And we're told here that the reason they did this is they were testing him. This was very, uh, uh, a very regular thing for the Pharisees up to this point, testing him. And he answered and said to them, what did Moses command you? What did Moses command you? And they said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and to dismiss her. And Jesus answered and said to him, because of the hardness of your heart, he wrote you this precept. But from the beginning of the creation, God made them male and female. That settles a lot of things, doesn't it? <laughs> Saying. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. In the, house of, in the house, his disciples also asked him again about the same matter. And we know that the disciples were accustomed to this when they had a lack of understanding or desired clarity in the things that Jesus was teaching them. They had the, the unique honor and privilege of being alone with Jesus and asking for clarity. And this is what's going on. Jesus, teach us more. Tell us what exactly you mean here. And so he said in verse 11 to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if a woman divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. And Lord, um, again, there are difficult things in this chapter that you were talking to your disciples about. Different difficult things for us, Lord, sometimes to hear and to receive. And Lord, there are all of us here, Lord, have some kind of path before we came to you. And Lord, we're grateful that you are not a God who condemns us, but a God who came to save us, to restore us, to reconcile us back to you, and Lord, to reconcile back to us um, what our sin had eaten away from us, had taken from us. So Lord, I pray again as we go through these words that the enemy in our own hearts would not speak condemnation to us, Lord, maybe in light of the, the past that we have lived before and the things that we've gone through. Um, but, Lord, that we would live as people who are free in your grace and free in the victory that you've given us, Lord. Free to rest in your love, free to uh, know that we're loved by you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, at the end of chapter 9, what we were studying and finished last week, we read that Jesus and his disciples, if you remember, were now headed to Jerusalem. Um, this would be the last trip that they would make together as Jesus would ultimately go to the cross and give his life as a ransom. And they left the northern part of Israel, and they were making their way journey, uh, making their, their, their last journey to Jerusalem. And doing so, they first traveled, we were told, through the region of Galilee and into the city of Capernaum. And while they were there, Jesus' disciples spent some time together. We were told that that place in Capernaum, which happened to be the headquarters, if you will, for Jesus and his disciples, for most of their time of ministry, that they had retreated there, and Jesus and, and his um, disciples spent some time away from the crowds, 
And Jesus was teaching them, and he was preparing them for what would come when they got to Jerusalem together. It, it, it would be a very trying time. You guys know a time that was a great testing for, their, for the disciples as they would be challenged in many ways by the, what they would see, by, by what they would witness happen to Jesus, their, their Lord their, and their Savior. And if you were here last week, we know, we know that Jesus had for a second time um, spoke to them and, and gave him this news, this information that he was going to be betrayed that he was going to be arrested, betrayed, arrested, and then ultimately crucified, but only to rise up on the third day, right? Resurrected back to life. And the disciples, we were told at the end of chapter 9, they were afraid. When they heard these things, they were grieved. We're told in Matthew's account uh, over the news. Uh, but they did not fully understand what Jesus was telling them because they still believed that Jesus had come at this time to set up his kingdom upon this earth, and um, this belief in combination, we know, with their own selfish ambitions, led them to, to argue, to dispute among themselves over which one of them was going to be the greatest in the kingdom of God and in turn ignore the things that Jesus had just made known to them. <coughs> Consequently, it was that self-centeredness, that, that selfishness that prompted Jesus to teach them again about the kingdom of God, how things are different in God's kingdom and how things need to be different for those who are part of God's kingdom, for us, who also have, the Bible tells us, a heavenly citizenship. You know, this is no longer our home, so to speak. We are longing for a home to come like the prophets and the, the fathers that have come before us, a, a city that has not been built with the, the hands of men, but by God himself, a heavenly city. And he told them that if they desired to be ultimately first in God's kingdom, because that's what they were arguing about, right? Who was going to be the greatest? Who was going to have the most power, or the place of prominence, and the position of honor? You know, if they desired to be first in God's kingdom, he said, if you truly want this, then they needed to seek to be the last of all and to be the servant of all while they are here upon this earth. And that same message is ultimately being conveyed um, through these verses that we read and where we'll ultimately end up in chapter in, in this chapter and um, uh, by the end of this morning at verse 31 and, and you can look ahead there if you want but you'll see the connection but before they left Capernaum we told or when they left Capernaum they went to Judea is what Mark tells us here and Jesus gave them a warning about the um, uh, or excuse me before they left Judea and went to, to G Capernaum and went to Judea, Judea, Jesus gave them a warning about their selflessness or selfishness and, uh, and about their self-centeredness, which causes division. And, and ultimately what he was telling them is he was giving them a command to be at peace, to have peace with one another. And, and that was very important, especially when we know that it wouldn't be too long before Jesus would suffer these things. And they, at that point, would have great need for one another in ways that they never thought or, or knew before. And now in verse 1 of this next chapter, we're told that Jesus and the disciples, they crossed over to what would be the east side of the Jordan River into the region of Judea, making the ascent into Jerusalem. That's what would take place next. And then the people, like they had previously done, they were gathering there together to Jesus, and Jesus continued to teach them like he had always done. Likewise, the Pharisees, who are mentioned in verse 2, like they had previously done, also came to Jesus 
and the word here is seeking to test him, and they ask the question, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And the old King James translates this word test to the word tempt. And maybe you have an old King James version of, of the Bible, but it's, it's, it's the word tempt. And I think that's probably a more um, accurate uh, word to translate from the Greek, too. It's the Greek word here is, is um, pirazo, and it means this. It means to test one's faith, virtue, and character by enticement to sin. And in light of this, we see that the Pharisees were hoping to um, set up Jesus, to find some fault with him. It literally means to test one maliciously, craftily, in order to, to give proof to their, their feelings or judgments. In other words, they were trying to draw, draw a reaction or a response out of Jesus that would then bring some kind of condemnation that, that they could throw at him. And in doing so, that they were really, literally hoping that Jesus would self-incriminate himself with the answer and arouse some kind of opposition against him. And this was the motive of the Pharisees for quite some time now in the interactions that they'd been having with Jesus. And perhaps they thought that Jesus would contradict Deuteronomy chapter 24, right? Well, what does Moses say? You know, as, as, as they said, Moses said this, and and, and um, that's, that's in Deuteronomy chapter 24 where Moses had spoken about a certificate of divorce. And I want to read to you verse 1, but I want to let you know that there's more verses in Deuteronomy chapter 24 that deal and speak about this issue of divorce and marriage. And, and I wa also want you to, to know that when we look at the Pharisees and they were so far removed from the context and the true heart behind what was written in Deuteronomy chapter 24 that I need to communicate to you that when you read it, what we need to see is that Moses had written these things, obviously under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, still the word of God, but he did so and it was these things were given as a protection for women at this at this moment, at this instance, that when they were divorced, that they would still be cared for, they would still be provided for, and there's language and instruction there in that. But it says in verse 1, it says, when a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some uncleanness in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand, and sends her out of his house. And you see, at this time, the Pharisees, all the Pharisees pretty much agreed that these religious leaders, that this Old Testament passage then was a permission. It permitted divorce. And even though they all agreed that only the husband could initiate it and that divorce gave a right to marry, there was a disagreement, a fundamental disagreement on what the justified reasons were for divorce, meaning what the the, 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 the the true conversation around the language here is is what would constitute uncleanness, right? What falls underneath that banner? And at this time, there were two different schools of thoughts that had been handed down from the teaching of two rabbis, um, and uh, which have been recorded. They're recorded in the Mishnah today, and you can read that. You can go search online, and the Mishnah is, is uploaded online. You can go and read it for yourself. You don't have to have a hard copy. But there was the strict view of, of the rabbi Shimei who allowed for divorce only in the case of unfaithfulness. He said that's what it's referring to. This uncleanness is only in uh, sexual immorality in, in, in the case of adultery. And yet there was the more lenient view of, 
of a rabbi named Halal who, who allowed a husband to divorce his, his wife for just about any reason. And when you read through the Mishnah, there's a list there of permittable reasons that fall under this banner or this, this definition of what is unclean. I mean, um, it's, 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 it's pretty much for any reason that the husband thought was justified, really was the extreme version of this. And so the Pharisees came to test Jesus, and they were hopefully obvious, they were ho- obviously hoping that Jesus would take a side in the dispute. And that's why Jesus, you know, first of all, he, he, he didn't care what these other rabbis said, right? He says in verse 3, he responded to them, you know, is, is, is what matters is what Moses commanded. It matters what the law says. It matters what God says. I don't care what these other rabbis have said. And, and so Jesus didn't take uh, a side in the dispute. And, of course, there was no division in that. He wasn't going to argue with the Pharisees about that. And instead of taking sides with these two rabbis, he referred back to what Moses said in Deuteronomy chapter 24, but also back to Genesis which tells of the first marriage between Adam and Eve. And in doing so, this is what I want us to notice, is that, and this because this is so important today, lots of people that I've done marriage counseling with, they want to, they come in with their focus on divorce and want to know what God's word says about divorce and, and, and looking for, you know, maybe a justifiable reason to, to break or end the marriage relationship. And, and that, and I love what Jesus does here because there's an example for, for, for me and for all of us that, Divorce isn't really what we need to be focusing on. See, and Jesus transitioned from a talk about, about divorce to a talk about marriage. Doesn't, it, you need to have a right understanding of marriage is what Jesus is saying. And, and he did so because the problem wasn't that they didn't understand. The, the problem was not that they didn't understand the law about divorce. The problem was that they didn't understand what God had said about marriage. And so Jesus pointed out that from the very beginning, God's plan for marriage was that, that one man and one woman would enter into a covenant relationship and do so becoming flesh, one flesh for one lifetime. And, and in regards to covenant, it's not the same as a contract. There's a very different thing. Within a contract, two people come with um, what is, is, is beneficial to themselves. In the marriage relationship in the marriage covenant biblically speaking it, it, it's a covenant and a covenant seeks what's best for both parties and and two become one in the marriage relationship is what we're told here and so two come in with the best interest for for the whole not seeking to just get something for themselves and so one man one woman enter into a covenant relationship jesus said and in doing so become one flesh for one lifetime and jesus also pointed out that Moses' words about a certificate of divorce ultimately in Deuteronomy chapter 24 was nothing more than a concession to the Jews, he said, because of their hardness of heart. In other words, what he was saying is it never, that it did not represent God's model for marriage when it was instituted. And the thing for us to notice about Jesus referring back to what the word of God says, guys, this is, a smor- this is important, it has shown that um, a person's opinion, my opinion, your opinion, the world's opinion, it doesn't matter when it comes to issues like this. What matters is what God's word says. God's word is the highest authority, and it is, it is what we need to submit our lives to. It is need what, we, what we need to submit our will to. It needs to be what we submit our understanding to. 
in spite of whatever else is going on in the world today in regards to what the world says marriage should look like or what marriage is for or what marriage is about or how it should be. God's word is the highest authority. Therefore, what God's word says is what needs to govern our, what we need to govern our, our lives by. So as we consider the whole counsel of God's word, I want to also point out that in Matthew chapter 19, the gospel account there is a parallel passage of these events that we're reading here. It tells us that Jesus did permit divorce on the grounds of infidelity. Jesus spoke into the situation, Mark doesn't record it, but Matthew says that, that, it, that Jesus said divorce is permittable for sexual immorality, for adultery. And this is because fundamentally it's not the only fundamental pillar in a marriage relationship, but marriage is fundamentally a physical relationship. And for this reason, there is this reference for, um, there's this reference to two people becoming one flesh, Right? And when we think about that, then it, marriage can only be broken, therefore, by a physical cause. Two people entering a covenant relationship, which is fundamentally rooted in a physical coming together, and, and it can only be broken by a physical cause, either, either by death, the Bible says, according to Romans chapter 7, verses 23, or 2 through 3, which says this, For the woman who has the husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. But if the husband dies, she is released from the law of her husband. And so then, if while her husband lives, she marries another, she'll be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from that so that she is no adulteress though she has married another man. And that's important to note because there are religions out there, false religions and others like them, that, that, that suggest or, or put forth the idea that man and woman will be married for all time and eternity. Jesus will go on later to say that, that men and women are not, are, are not married you know, in, in, in heaven, for, for that, that we, are, we are apart from that because death is the physical means by which this covenant relationship is is ended uh, the other cause again is physical is the sexual immorality part of it as stated by jesus in matthew chapter 19 verse 9 which says this and i say to you whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another he commits they commit adultery and whoever marries her who is divorced also commits adultery and the other biblical reason there is another biblical reason. Another biblical reason given for divorce is abandonment. And, and maybe you've not heard that before, but I want to give you the whole counsel of God's word and what it says. And, and Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. You can go and read that chapter, read what Paul writes there. And in that situation, unlike the instance of adultery, there is the instruction by the apostle Paul to not remarry. If you are abandoned, you're in a marriage relationship and your spouse abandons you, the instruction is not to remarry. And there are two reasons given for why. The first is, is that you run the risk in that situation of being guilty of committing adultery. And the other reason is so that you are available for reconciliation. And the heart and the mindset behind that is even in the midst of the abandonment is that that there would be a restoration and a reconciliation that takes place and you live in that place of waiting for that time hopefully and 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 what this means is that the husband and the wife should do everything possible to rescue their marriage and rebuild that that covenant relationship 
Why, guys? Why would that be there? Because this is the heart of God. That's what we're told. It's the heart of God. And this is clearly conveyed to us in Malachi chapter 2, verse 16, which says, God hates divorce for it covers one one's garment with violence. And there are so many instances of that. We think I think about the prodigal son and the father, you know? The father, when the son went away and spent all of his inheritance on lewdness and filthy living, we're told that the father was there waiting. He didn't dismiss his son. He dis- disowned his son. And, of course, uh, that, that's a picture of the relationship that we have with the father, that even when we abandon God, so to speak, he doesn't abandon us. His heart is for restoration. His heart is for reconciliation. He's there waiting for us with open arms to welcome us back when we come and seek to be restored back to him. And we also know that the same relationship that we have with Christ is also illustrated with the bride and the bridegroom imagery. And um, the Bible teaches us that God established the covenant of marriage for two purposes. And we think about it. We think about the God's heart. And, and I'll get that here. But, you know, if we're studying on Friday mornings now the book of Hosea. And the book of Hosea is also another wonderful picture of the heart of God. The prophet of God in the very first chapter is to go, he's told to go and take a wife of harlotry. And there's some discussion on whether or not she was an actual harlot at the time or God was just saying that she was going to be unfaithful. But all throughout that book, Hosea is commanded when when his wife goes out and commits adultery against him that he would go out and take her and bring bring her back to himself. And of course, God was using the prophet Isaiah's words to speak to the children of Israel about being restored back to him because they had committed spiritual adultery uh, against him by worshiping and giving their lives over to these false gods of these pagan people that they lived with. And Jesus was saying, God was saying, excuse me, that, that I will take you back, that I'm coming to you to bring you back over and over and over again. And it wasn't just the words of Hosea that spoke this message. It was the life of Hosea that was to be lived out as a sacrifice for God before the people as Hosea continued to go retrieve his wife and she would leave and he would retrieve her and he would leave she would leave and and ultimately again the book of Hosea is an awesome wonderful picture of how God always desires forgiveness and reconciliation God always desires forgiveness and reconciliation I don't know about you but that's a that's a wonderful comforting thing for me because I'm in need of his reckon I'm in need of forgiveness and reconciliation on a daily basis I'm so grateful that God doesn't go okay that's enough you're done goodbye you know only only we can choose that he doesn't choose that for us And the Bible teaches us, like I said, that God, God established the covenant marriage for two purposes. The first is for companionship. And I'm here to tell you right now, my wife is my best friend, guys, and God desires that in the marriage relationship, that your spouse would be your best friend. And that you would work on that. You would strive to have good relationship together, that you would invest your time, your energy, your resources into building that companionship part of your relationship and the other part is for procreation god makes it very clear that that physical aspect of two coming together as one that the marriage is that children are the intended and natural result i will say of most marriages because lots of people can't have merit have have children and that's 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 i understand that but there are other means and god still 
would love for you to choose other means to have children in your life, but uh, procreation is a part of that. And so as we see children as a part of marriage, we read on in verse 13 now, and we're told what happened when the crowds of people tried to bring their children to Jesus. And so we read, it says, it's, and then they brought the little children to him. These are crowds of people that Jesus had been teaching, right? And it says that if they brought these children to them, that he might touch them. But the disciples rebuked those who brought them. And when Jesus saw it, he was greatly displeased and said to them, let the little children come to me and do not forbid them for of such is the kingdom of God. Assuredly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child or like a little child, they will by no means enter into it. It's a very powerful statement. It deserves our reflection. In verse 16, and you see, and he took them up in his arms and laid his hands on them and he blessed them. So Christ received them even though they were being held back by his disciples. And in the Jewish culture, it was customary. This was a very normal, natural, customary thing that we're reading here in regard for parents bringing their children to the rabbis so that they could lay their hands upon them and bless them. And this is what these parents were asking. They were only doing which was customary and reasonable. And yet his disciples here sought to prevent this from happening at this time. We're not told exactly why, but it was probably because they looked at they looked at it as a nuisance. Keep these kids away. Jesus got important things to do right now, right? They probably believed that they were doing Jesus a favor since they did not consider children to be important enough to take up some of Jesus' time. Now, whether or not the disciples saw the children as a nuisance, not really important um, or, or, or not as important enough, the fact is, is that they had made some judgment. And in their judgments, they determined that it would be best if these children were prevented access to Jesus and were told that this displeased Jesus and he rebuked his disciples. And he used this as what we see, and this is what I want to draw our attention to, is he used this, this um, situation as an opportunity to teach and declare that children were better kingdom examples than adults were. The way that children live their lives, are, are the, their lives and the way that they live them are better examples of, of, of um, kingdom things and, 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 and what it means to be a citizen of the kingdom of God than adults were. And in light of this, I'm just thinking about that. I think it's kind of funny that we spend a lot of time telling our kids to grow up. <laughs> you know, start acting like an adult. But Jesus is telling us that when it comes to our faith, guys, when it comes to receiving the kingdom of God, we need to be like little children. And so I would challenge you now as we consider that to start thinking about, we all know what it means to be childlike. And I don't mean to be childish or, or foolish. You know, children can be childish and they can be very foolish, but they can, to, to that, that, that awe, that wonder, that beauty of being childlike as you look at life, and as you receive life and, and ponder and, and, and enjoy its awesomeness. And this is the things that, that, that Jesus is, is referring to here. And so again, it's not meaning that we're to be childish in our faith, but we are to be childlike in our faith. In other words, like a child, think about it, like a child is humbly dependent on others for their basic needs for provision and for protection, so too must we be humbly dependent upon God. 
furthermore, like a child is so open and so willing to gratefully receive what their parent has for them as a good thing, and you can kind of have some fun with that if you're a little mischievous like me when it comes to your kids. Oh, yeah, taste this. It's really good. <laughs> and then they'll never take anything from you again, right? No. But, you know, children are so, they're so, they're so open and willing to gratefully receive from their parents what they have for them as it's a, this thing. They just, they just, it's a good thing. Dad's given it to me. Mom's given it to me. It's got to be a good thing. You know, in that same way, we must also gratefully receive all that our Heavenly Father has for us as a good thing. And man, that's very convicting to me, and I don't know if it is for you today, but lots of times I look at the things that God allows into my life or the way that He's provided for me or the way that He's protected me, and, and I make some kind of judgment against God on His goodness. How can this be good? Right? Rather than just having a childlike faith and trusting in God and Yes, my father is good, and I'll receive what he has given to me. And, you know, these are only just a, a couple of examples, two examples. I think of many others. I'm sure that you could probably think of others on your own on what it means to be, to be like a child in regards to the exercising of our faith. But in light of this admonition to be childlike, I think it's important to point out this. I think it's amazing how a child... How a child is able to enjoy so much, but can explain so very little. And I think we lose so much of the ability to enjoy the things that God has given for us because we just have to in our, in our, in our, in our adultness, you know, in our spiritual maturity, just have to know. God, I just need to know. I need to know. Why, 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 why? Constantly, you know? And how many times do you, you get to your kids and you just go, it's because I said so. Stop. Just enjoy it. You know, and I think sometimes God's like that for us. It's a good thing. You know, and I want to be able to have that. I want us as children of God to be able to enjoy. God wants us to be able to enjoy this world, this life, our relationship with one another, our relationship with him, and not allow for these peripheral things that really don't matter to rob us of that joy. And I think children can do this because little children live their lives by faith as they are so willing to trust, are they not? They just take your hand and go wherever you lead them. Most of the time when they're not being little brats, but you guys get the point. The bottom line is we can only enter the kingdom into God's kingdom, Jesus says, by faith, with humility, with trust, with reliance, with dependency. Faith like little children, as we understand and admit that we're ultimately helpless, we're ultimately unable to save ourselves, and we're ultimately totally dependent upon the mercy and the grace of God. Likewise, enjoying the kingdom of God and all of God's blessing by faith, believing that our God, God our Father, believing that He loves us, and trusting that He'll care for our daily needs. I love Psalm 131. I want to read it to you. Some, some, some verses there that kind of condenses this thinking. The psalmist writes, and he says, Lord, my heart is not haughty. My eyes are not lofty. Neither do I concern myself with great matters, nor with things too profound for me. Surely I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with his mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth. There's another translation um, 
I, I like the way it, it puts it forth. I want to read it again in another way. It says, Lord, I have given up my pride. Lord, I've given up my pride and I've turned away from my arrogance. I have not concerned, I am not concerned with great matters or with subjects too difficult for me. Instead, I am content and at peace as a child lies quietly in its mother's arms. So my heart is quiet within me. Trust in the Lord now and forever. Trust in the Lord. I love that imagery of just crawling onto the lap of the father or the mother as a little child and just resting your head there in that place of peace and safety and joy and comfort, quieting yourself. And I know that's what God has for us when we come to him with childlike faith. In verse 17, it says, as he was going, now as he was going out on the road, one came running and he knelt down before him and he asked him, saying, good teacher, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? And so Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good but one that is God. So he's kind of challenging this man. Who are you saying that I am? Let me tell you who I am, right? And then in verse 19, he says, he's going to answer the man's questions. He says, you know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and your mother. And he answered and he said to him, teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. And then Jesus, looking at him, loved him. Underline that. I want you to underline that because Jesus is going to speak a truth to him. Not a truth in condemnation, but a truth in love. And we live in a world today where um, the truth is perceived to not be a loving thing to speak. And it can truly, the truth can be spoken in a very unloving way. But the truth at its root is the love of God. And people need the truth. And we must be willing to speak the truth, stand in the truth, live according to the truth. And the motive that we need to have is the same that Jesus did here for this man whom he loved. And he said to him, one thing you lack, go your way, sell whatever you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come take up the cross and follow me. But he was sad at this word and he went out sorrowful, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions and clearly we see that he was, un un he was unwilling to give up the things the material things of the, this life um, for following after Christ but so far in Mark's gospel we've read about many different people think about it I think about the leper who came to Jesus and said Jesus if you're willing to touch me I will be made clean Jesus said I'm willing and he reached out his hand and he touched the leper I think about the people that, that have brought their, those they themselves were sick or lame, the blind, even those who, who, who were dying or had died that Jesus had raised back to life, that, that these people, so many people in Mark's gospel account who have come to Jesus either literally or figuratively and have knelt before his feet. And as I think about all those people in light of what I read here, what I see is that all those people... Out of all of those people that I can remember and think about, this man is the only one who went away worse than when he came. Think about that. He went away worse than when he came. Clearly, when 
he came to Jesus, it was in a respectful way. You know, I want to just put this out. A lot, of, a lot of people, a lot of scholars, commentators think this is Mark, the author of this gospel, who would eventually follow after Peter. I don't know, but I sure hope so. I sure hope that's the redeeming part of this, that this is Mark is actually telling this account about himself and that, that at some point he did come back to Christ and leave all behind to come and follow him. That's just a side note, but anyway, I hope that's true. You know, this guy, whoever he is, this rich young ruler, as he's referred to in other scriptures or possibly the, the Mark here, he came to Jesus, and when he came to him, it was in a respectful way, right? And apparently there was enough desire within his heart for spiritual things. He had, a, he had a concern and desire for spiritual things since he came asking, what must I do to inherit eternal life? But the fact that he asked what he could do, what could I do, what can I do to inherit life, it also revealed the problem in his heart. What do I mean? It means that he clearly thought, clearly thought that he could do something to earn or merit, deserve eternal life. And you know, this, is a, this was a common belief then, and it is still a common belief today. It's common for people to believe that they have to do something or that they can do something to earn eternal life. And sadly, most unsaved people wrongly believe that God will one day add up their good works, right? And their bad works. And if the good works outweigh their bad works, then they're going to get into heaven. However, there are many problems to this good works approach to salvation. But the most important thing to look at in light of this is to see that those who believe in a works-based salvation, and there are many types of religions out there that kind of bring this, this belief system into, into, a, into an action, if you will, by a list of things. You know, they're, they're giving lists for people to do. But I want to point this out, that... Um, those who believe in a works-based salvation, like this young man, ultimately and sadly, they have a superficial view of their sin. They have a superficial view of themselves. Not, they don't have a correct view. They don't have a biblical view. They don't have a right view of the Bible. They don't have a right view of salvation. And they clearly don't have a right view of who Jesus is. In other words, let me explain it this way. Sin is first and foremost an offense, the Bible tells us, to and a rebellion against a God who is holy. Furthermore, sin is not simply an evil or a bad action that someone does. Sin, rather, is an inward attitude that exalts self and defies God. And in regards to this rich young man, when he, when he obviously thought he could do a few like good works, a few religious works, and then how, somehow settle this deficit account that he had with God he, he, when he claimed to have kept all the commandments from his youth, and it's apparent that he also had this superficial view of Jesus when we consider that he referred to Jesus when he came to him with the title of good teacher. And perhaps, perhaps in doing so, he was trying to flatter Jesus. I don't know. I think there's a little bit of that going on. Good teacher. But Jesus challenged him, right, by pointing out that only God was good. But I want you to notice that Jesus didn't deny that he was good. He didn't say, don't call me good. I'm not good. He said, why do you call me good? For only God is good. Is this what you're saying? Are you calling me? Are you referring to me as God? Are you acknowledging this truth? 
On the contrary, Jesus wasn't denying that he was good or that he was God. He was affirming it and leading this man to acknowledge that he was God. He was calling him to address that first. And of course, we don't see that happening. But this issue of knowing who Jesus is, right? This is the place where, where all people who are inquiring about God and, or, or about how to get eternal life must begin. And so if you have the good fortune ever of someday going, how do I get to how do I get to heaven? What must I do in some form, some fashion says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? You have to start with the person of Jesus Christ with them. Who do you say that Jesus is? You have to start there, because if Jesus is not God. Then there's no reason to trust in him as your Lord and Savior, right? And this is why Jesus wanted to be sure that this young man really knew what he was saying. He wanted him to know that he is God who is good. But once you realize who Jesus is, then we know that there are additional steps that must be taken. You have to take the next step. You have to realize ultimately your need for him. There are a lot of people who, who um, believe in God, so to speak, but they don't submit their lives to him. They don't believe they have a need for him. And this is explains why Jesus went on in verses 18 and 19, right? If you want to look there, he went on in 18 and 19 to point the young man to the law, for he knew that the keeping of the law is not what would give this man eternal life, because in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, it says that we are saved by grace through faith. It's not of ourselves, it's the gift of God. Why? Because if it was, if it was about works, we would just boast in it. We would all get up to heaven and we'd spend the rest of eternity bragging amongst one another about how great of things we did to get here. But Jesus put the law before this rich young man because he wanted this man to see that he was a sinner who fell short of keeping God's commands and therefore was in need of something that he did not possess and in order to inherit eternal life. There's nothing you can do. In other words, that's what Jesus was saying. There's no hope for you in and of yourself. You see, the very purpose of the law, as it is designed, is to act as a mirror, right? The Bible says that there's much imagery in Scripture and refers to God's law as a, as a mirror. That image of a mirror reveals our deficits. It reveals how dirty we are. You know, we get up in the morning, we look in the mirror, and we see we got to wash our face and comb our hair. Things aren't in order. God's word as a mirror does the same thing. But the mirror, the law, let me tell you, cannot clean us. If you wake up in the morning and you look at the mirror and then you try to brush your hair with the mirror and wash your face with the mirror, that's foolishness. That doesn't happen. So one purpose of the law is to reveal our need and bring us the sinner to Christ. What is exactly what it did in this man's, in this man's case. Galatians chapter 3, verse 24 affirms this. Listen, it says, therefore the law was our tutor. Paul speaks about it. He, was, he says it was our tutor, it was our school teacher to bring us to Christ that we might be then justified by our faith. Not justified by works, but by our faith in him. And even though the law can bring a sinner to Christ, the law cannot make the sinner like Christ. That's important for us to remember today as followers of Christ. It's not even the keeping of the law that makes us like Christ. Only the grace of God and the sanctifying power of the Holy Spirit can do that. And the grace of God is not something we can work for. 
It has to be something that we freely receive after we realize that we are a, consen- a, con- a condemned sinner who is standing before a holy God. God, I have a need. I am in need of your grace, your mercy, your forgiveness. And this, young, this rich young ruler, this young man, perhaps Mark, he did not see himself as a condemned sinner before a holy God. And it's because he had a superficial view of the law for he measured his obedience by his external actions, right? And not by his inward attitudes. And we know that Jesus also exposed the failure and the fault in this, the flaw in this, is, is, is looking at just the behavioral part of it when he gave his sermon on the mountain, spoke about that, you know, even if a man thinketh in his heart these ways, he is guilty of the law. You've lusted after a woman in your heart. If you'd had anger against your brother in your heart, you've broken the law. It does not have to be just an outward thing. It's an inward attitude. And as far as his actions were concerned, perhaps he was blameless in these things, right? Perhaps he had never murdered. Perhaps he'd never stealed. I don't know. I don't think he's a liar in this situation. That's not the, the, not the, not the, 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 the intent here. But he, 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 he may have been blameless externally, but inwardly, the attitude of his heart was not blameless. And Jesus reveals this to him. That's why it says he loved him. What did he reveal? That the man was covetous. He, he, he had covetousness. He wanted the things of this life. And after claiming he kept all the law from his youth in order to expose his heart, Jesus said, there's just one more thing you must do. And he told him, go and sell all that he had. Give it to the poor and then take up your cross and follow me. In other words, what Jesus was saying, stop trusting, stop trusting in your things. Stop trusting in your things. Die to your sin. Trust only in me. And so he may have kept some of the commandments, but that last commandment, the last commandment caught him. Thou shall not covet. And I'm here to tell you, covetousness, which is an inward attitude, can be a subtle sin, especially in this materialistic society we live in where we all have so much and it's very acceptable it can be a difficult thing to detect, covetousness, but it can cause a person to break every one of the other commandments of God. Verse 23. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard is it for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God? And his disciples were astonished at his words. But Jesus answered again and said to them, children, how hard is it for those to trust in riches Here's the key word, right? Is it for those who trust in riches to enter the kingdom of God? It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And they were greatly astonished, saying among them, among themselves, who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, with men it is impossible, but not with God. For with God all things, all things are possible. Then Peter said, Peter began to say to him, See, we have left all and followed you. And so Jesus answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, there is no one who has left a house, a brother, a sister, or a father, or a mother, or a wife, or children, or lands for my sake in the Gospels, who shall not receive a hundredfold. Now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. And obviously the disciples 
were shocked, I think, by these two statements. And Peter, Peter's response is an indication of that. You know, it's like, Lord, look at us. Look what we've done, right? And um, I, I think they were probably shocked, not just about the two statements, but the whole conversation that's been going on that we've been, st- and we've been studying. But these two statements specifically about how hard it was for a rich person to enter into the kingdom of God. And this is partially due to the fact that it was commonly believed amongst the Hebrew people at this time, culturally speaking anyway, that great wealth was the evidence of God's favor. Great wealth and abundance was, the, 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 was uh, evidence of God's special blessing. And the truth is that many people today also believe in this way in spite of many evidences in, in Scripture. Like, for example, the whole message given throughout the book of Job. You know, Job was a man who had found favor with God. God was pleased with him, but yet Job lost, lost it all. And you guys know the story there. If you don't, go read it. It's a very interesting book. But in addition to that, we see that um, Christ examples in the way he lives his life that um, having things is not uh, evidence, direct evidence of God's um, favor or God's special blessings. And also for the apostles who all died, um, pretty much all of them died, uh, poor and um, as, as martyrs. And then clearly we have the, the teachings of the New Testament. But this is not to say that there are not examples. I mean, hear me. This is not to say that there's not examples of God blessing people with money and possessions because he did and he still does. And I think every one of us in this room, you know, comparatively speaking to the rest of the people in the world and people down through time, we are incredibly blessed in financial ways with abundance beyond, beyond measure if we want to compare ourselves in that way. The problem is we usually compare ourselves with those who have more than us, not usually more to compare ourselves with those who have less than us in that sense. And um, um, I'm grateful for these verses because truly we all fall under that category of those who are rich. We have so much. But, but, but there's still <laughs> hope for us and we know that. And, and um, the Bible is clear that um, when we submit to God, um, there is a blessing. When we follow after God, it will lead us into a life of blessing. Um, even when God gave the law to his people, he, Moses read the law. He put half on one mountain, Mount Gerizim, Gerizim and another one, uh, half of them on the other mountain. Moses spoke blessings and cursings and saying, if you follow God, it'll go well with you. There will be blessings. If you don't, there's going to be curses. There's going to be consequences. And so that you can understand where that thinking plays into this idea that if I follow after God, God's going to bless me. But here's the thing. God will bless us, but we can't look to what we have or what we don't have as some kind of barometer to God's favor. That's the difference. And we can never allow our money. We can never allow for our money. We can never allow for our possessions or any other thing that we have that God blesses us to be what we ultimately put our trust in. And that's what Jesus quantified here when he said, you know, talking about rich men or rich people trusting in the things that they've been blessed with. Because ultimately what they can do is they can rob us of our glad they, they can rob us of our greatest blessing, which is having intimate fellowship with God who loves us, right? It goes back to understanding that we are dependent upon God for everything and not dependent and trusting upon the things that God's given to us, but on the one who gives. And in the case of this young man, his wealth robbed him. Denny, if you and the worship team want to come up, we're going to wrap it up with this. 
His wealth robbed him of God's blessing, and today wealth continues to rob, rob uh, it, it, it makes rich people poor. Wealth continues to make many, many rich people in our, our society poor, spiritually poor, right, in that, in that negative sense. Those, I would think, whom this world often sees as first, wealth can make them last. And it's been said that money is a marvelous servant, but it's a terrible master. And in light of this, we need to be grateful for the things that God's given us, our money, the possessions, food, provision. And we need to use them for his glory, for his kingdom, for his purposes, whether we have a little or a lot. Scripture tells us that. Whether you believe you have a little or a lot, we all need to be investing into God's kingdom. But if our money and our possessions have a hold of us, then that's when we need to beware. And in these, wor- in these verses, in these verses of this chapter, I'm going to say, Jesus spoke some very difficult things. And so if you have issue with it, don't take it up with me. <laughs> I'm only giving you scripture. <laughs> I'm just kidding. We can talk about it. I want to talk about it. They're very difficult things. They were difficult for his disciples. They're, they're hard to digest. And they're, they're things that are difficult for us, hard to digest. But we need to remember these words of Jesus here where he tells us this, as I think it is conveyed to the whole encounter that we've been reading about with the Pharisees and Jesus teaching his disciples and the rich young ruler, where Jesus said, man, where it's impossible, it may be impossible with men, but not with God. For with God, all things are possible. That's our hope. And certainly, I can tell you this, it can be hard to give up all to follow and trust in Jesus, but eternal life, the greatest of all things, Jesus says, it, can, it clearly can come no other way. We cannot hold on to the things of this world or this life and Jesus at the same time. And the truth is, those things that we hold on to this world, because they hinder us from surrendering our lives to Jesus, or they hinder us in following after him, and, and they're really not as valuable, as important as we would like to believe they are. Furthermore, what I love about this chapter is in the end of it, when Peter comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, we've done this. We've given it all. We followed after you. And, and, and Peter says, and Jesus speaks to Peter, he commends him in one way, but he also says, listen, whatever you've given up is not going to exceed the blessing that I have waiting for you. And guys, that's the lie that we want to unveil this morning in our own hearts and our minds and the worlds that we live in. Because whether God calls us to give up a material thing, an attitude, a heart thing, a sin thing, and we lay it down at the feet of Jesus and we turn away from it, it's really not at any cost to ourselves. It's to our benefit. It's to our blessing. Because God always has more, better waiting for us. So Father, I pray today that we would see this that we would trust in you, that we would put faith in you, that we would let go of the things that we're holding on to in our lives that you're asking for. Lord, whether it's a, a sin or it's a, it's a material thing, Lord, whether it's a, a love for um, someone and something else uh, above our love for you, whatever it is, Lord, we know these things that we cling to. And when our hands are full of these things that we desire to bless ourselves with, 
Lord, we, we, they're not, we're not able to, 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 to then open them up and receive what you have for us. And I pray, Lord, that we would lay these things down that so easily encumber us, so easily weight us. And Lord, we would, we would, we as these, I just see the imagery of a little child, Lord, lifting up his arms to, to his father and going, here I am, bless me, take me into your arms, pick me up, Lord, and, and provide and put into my life what you need. And I pray, God, that's, that's what it would be for us today. We would have the faith to trust you to provide for you, and to know, Lord, that with you all things are possible. So we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.